I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ram Dass's Love Serve Remember Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma Hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ram Dass, Krishna Dass, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more, the Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Teaching meditation can be a deeply rewarding experience. Help others improve their mental and emotional well-being reduce stress, improve focus, increase self-awareness and self-regulation, all while deepening your own practice and understanding. Join acclaimed author, Buddhist teacher, and Emmy Award-winning musician David Nickturn on Tuesday, May 28th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time for a free online discussion on teaching meditation in Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash be here now for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn on May 28th. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to the Real Love Podcast Series, right here on the Sharon Salzberg Meta Hour. This series features a variety of conversations with the world's finest thinkers and teachers, exploring Sharon's latest book, Real Love, The Art of Mindful Connection. Hi, I'm Sharon Salzberg, and I'm speaking today with my good friend and colleague, Dr. Dan Siegel. Dan is an internationally acclaimed author, award-winning educator, and child psychiatrist. He's currently a clinical professor of psychiatry at the UCLA School of Medicine, where he is the founding director of the Mindful Awareness Research Center and executive director of the Mindsight Institute. His newest book is Mind, Journey to the Heart of Being Human, which came out this year and is already a New York Times bestseller. And I hear he has another book coming out called Aware, It'll be out August of 2018. Welcome, Dan. Thanks, Sharon. Thanks for having me. I'm so glad to see you. I was thinking today, 
you're the person, you're the first person who helped me understand what epigenetics were. Oh, wow. <laughs> Which is always a struggle. I kept hearing, well, you know, so much meditation research had happened through fMRIs once that was developed, and uh, but the real cutting edge was epigenetics. And I just think, what's epigenetics? I know, it's so, weird. But the idea that meditation could change the way your genes are regulated is awesome. So what you said, which I hope I, hope I got it right, was that um, like the librarian can't change the words in the book, but he or she might decide, say, to hide the book under the desk, in which case the book is not impactful. It's like that. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. that's so, great. Yeah. Because that I remember the conversation. It was also in the context of um, the things which perhaps affect us through epigenetics unto maybe four generations like trauma uh, and poverty, things like that. And so, um, w which is such a... Uh, you know, poignant and intense kind of consideration. And then to think, well, maybe there's something pretty near at hand that can also affect through the same vehicle us in a much more positive direction. Exactly. I mean, that's the hope that we would want to show in research. But absolutely, from a theoretical point of view, we know, number one, that you can change these librarians with your experience. And part of that experience is not just interacting with other people in the world, but it's what you do with your mind. So focusing attention certain ways and engaging awareness and compassion in certain ways, that is experience. And we now know those experiences change the librarians that regulate the library of your genes. <laughs> yeah. There you go. So many times people say to me, what in the world are epigenetics? And I say, Dan Siegel taught me. <laughs> it's like a librarian. Exactly. Um, and one of the... Arenas, I know you've studied in regards to neuroscience is the science involved in the brain when we're in relationships of any kind, Yeah, which is very interesting. So here's a quote from you. Interpersonal experience shapes the mind as it continues to develop throughout the lifespan. Interactions with the environment, especially relationships with other people, directly shape the development of the brain's structure and function. Now, that's intense, too. Right? Yeah. Yeah, and that's the amazing thing of the era we're in is that you can look at something like those interpersonal relationships and start to ask the question, well, how would the experience you have with friends or with family actually impact you? And if you're a little kid, like an infant, we can actually study how those relationships, it's called an attachment relationship, how those relationships with attachment figures affects the development of your brain. The other thing that's absolutely amazing about it is we're starting to understand that in our evolution, we probably started using the machinery of the brain that helps us know another person's mind, like where they're paying attention, what's in their awareness, what their intention is, before we actually use those same circuits to know our own mind so that you look at the social nature of the brain our evolution as social creatures before we became self-aware, reflective creatures. And then you can see why the beautiful work that you do with loving compassion allows you to harness the circuitry of interconnectivity, which is very much related fundamentally to the circuitry of consciousness. Wow, there's so much there. <laughs> I don't even know where to start. There's like 
30 things I want to ask you about right in there. Let's talk about yeah. attachment, first of all. Yeah. Because, um, you know, within the Buddhist tradition, which is where I got my meditation training, uh, attachment is considered the cause of suffering. That's how it's defined. Not something bad or wretched or, you know, dreadful, but really the cause of suffering. And so um, in these days, talking about attachment theory, it, it can get kind of confusing. So. Oh, absolutely. Well, right before you and I first met, because you were my first meditation teacher, mm -hmm. I think that was in January 2006. Uh -huh. uh, I had never meditated before, and I went for that week of silence at uh, your place, IMS, you know, yeah. to experience that with a hundred other people who I'd love to meet, but it was silence. So yeah. couldn't meet them. <laughs> but you and I could chat in those yeah. brief times. Um, right before that, there was a meeting, I think it was just in November, where, you know, I was just getting some ideas about this kind of stuff and thinking about it. And so um, I, some, one of Richard Davidson's uh, main scientists uh, was, had a poster at this big neuroscience meeting in, in D.C., and he said, oh, you know, what are you up to? I said, well, I'm just realizing as I read the research on, a, on mindfulness meditation that the outcomes seem extremely similar to the outcomes from my field of research, which is attachment research. And so I'm wondering how maybe mindfulness meditation and attachment go together somehow. I don't mm -hmm, know how. Mm -hmm. And then he says to me, you don't know what you're talking about. And I said, I know. I've never meditated before. I don't know what I'm talking about, but I'm just looking at the research, reading your work. And so I took him to lunch with his graduate student. We had the most amazing lunch because he said that in, in Buddhist practice, attachment is the thing you try to let go of. And I said, well, attachment research is not about that kind of attachment. Right. I said, it's actually about a relationship of love between a caregiver and a child or an adolescent, or actually we have attachment figures even into adulthood. Mm -hmm. And he looked puzzled by that, and he said, I still don't believe it. He goes, when you love someone, you're still attached to them, and that's not a good thing. And so we did, the graduate student, I think, was very fascinated that we didn't come to an understanding where these were just two different uses of the word. But my feeling is, mm -hmm. independent of his not going along with it, is that they are actually quite different. Yeah. That the love of attachment, I don't think you could tell me, in Buddhist practice, it is not something you try to let go of. Right? Well, I mean, you, I'm wouldn't, you, wouldn't, yeah, you wouldn't use the word attachment is yeah, the problem. But you know, love but, of a parent-child No, no, of course not. I mean, even, you know, they say that when the Buddha, uh, when his two chief disciples had died, he, he said something like, um, it's as though the sun and the moon have left the sky. Mm. You know, there's obviously there's a tremendous bond and there's this recognition of like a lifetime together and you know so it's not cold and well this is beautiful to hear you know especially from you because i was always left wondering from a, a buddhist practice and scholarly right. point of view from his telling me at lunch that i really didn't know what i was talking about i absolutely accepted that but i was left with an uncertainty now i feel better because <laughs> because you know look in yeah. english the word attachment from a science point of view my field is about the love between a caregiver and a child. Mm -hmm. And I understand in English you could also say attachment is clinging to a fixed idea yeah. or, or clinging to some idea of permanence. Yeah. And those clinging views of attachment, I totally get they can lead to suffering. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. I don't think parent-child love leads to suffering. Right. And that's what we call attachment. Yeah. So this yeah. is the problem yeah. with it, the English word. Yeah, no, it's a very different concept because sometimes... 
I actually urge people to replace the word attachment with control. Mm. If they're trying to understand the dynamic that's talked about in the Buddhist psychology, it's that um, it's when generosity changes to something else, you know, where there's really an element of trying to be in control. Mm -hmm. Whereas love is more kind of generosity. Yeah, beautiful. So. Yeah. So, oh gosh, then I have to go through my, my mental list of everything that came up. So, something else that came up when, when you were talking um, was I was reflecting on my own relationship with my teachers, whom I loved very much and who loved me very much. And uh, I'm going to be at um, this conference coming up not too long from now in, in New York City, uh, which is also about technology and people using apps and things like that mm -hmm. as their means of learning a meditation method. And I said I want part of my topic to be love because certainly we can learn a method, and I, I am very, very into technology, and I can barely not have my iPhone on right now. Um, but, uh, you know, the... Um, and the fact that it is allowing many people, you know, can't leave home, can't go to a meditation retreat, can't do all kinds of things to have access, I think is an amazing thing. But I wonder, you know, what, where that sense of um, seeing yourself reflected in someone else's eyes or, you know, without a community even, it doesn't have to be a teacher, but uh, yeah. there's some sense of belonging or mm -hmm. um, love that yeah. I think is part of what propels us. Yeah, it's such a great question, uh, and I also have 30 things going on in me to respond <laughs> yeah. to, so let me try to tease some of them apart. Um, let me share with you just a brief um, story of something that happened recently that uh, brings up exactly what you're talking about, I think. Um, you know, there's this very simple reflective practice I do called the Wheel of Awareness, which basically says if you were going to integrate consciousness what would you do? And integration means differentiate and then link. Mm -hmm. So I have this table in my office where there's a central hub, an outer rim. And so basically we put the knowing of consciousness in the hub. We put the knowns on the rim. So the bottom line is, I've done this with a lot of people and I was asked to do this in some government agency in another country. So I go to the parliament thing where you know they had me there to do the workshop and we do the wheel practice. And you go around the rim, you know, what you're seeing, what you're hearing, what you're smelling, tasting, touching on one segment of the rim. You then go to the interior of the body. Then you go to mental activities. Then you bend this spoke of attention you're moving around into the hub itself. So you experience awareness of awareness. And then you straighten it out. You go to relational sense. Mm -hmm. So there are four mm -hmm. segments. And it's really kind of fun. And it does focused attention, open awareness, and kind intention is mm -hmm. built into it. Anyway, so then people take the microphone after the practice and everyone's pretty much sharing what they have as a subjective experience. But one of the people in particular doesn't say a thing. And then at the break, he comes up to me and he goes, can I talk to you? I said, sure. He goes, you know, I didn't say anything during the discussion. I said, you know, I noticed. He goes, but I need to tell you what I experienced. And I said, okay. He goes, you know that part of the wheel practice where you bend the spoke around and just rest in the hub, rest in awareness? I said, yeah. He goes, I couldn't share what happened. I said, okay. He goes, but I want to share it with you. I said, okay. And he says, I've never felt so much love before in my life. Mm. I said, well, can you tell me about it? He goes, I just felt this feeling in my body of just being connected to everyone, of caring about everyone. 
and he gets tearful when he's telling me this. And he goes, but I just couldn't share it with the other parliamentarians. I said, okay. And he goes, because I would look so weak and I would look so soft if, if, I, if I shared that. So I said, okay, I understand you didn't want to look weak. You didn't want to look soft. You didn't want to share that you experienced love when you bent the spoke around and felt awareness of awareness, just what awareness is about. And then there was a silence between the two of us. We were just there with each other. And I looked him in the eyes and I said, so let me understand something. When you're making public policy in parliament, do you leave love out? Mm. And his eyes get really big. And, and he puts up his finger like, and he wags it at me like, okay, now I understand. And he takes off to go speak to his fellow government people. <laughs> and what it made me feel, because there's been a whole journey to try to figure out what that hub is. What mm -hmm. is awareness really all mm -hmm. about? And there's a whole thing we can get into if you want. But there's a scientific view of it where what I think love is, is very much overlapping with awareness itself. Mm -hmm. When you drop into this spaciousness of where knowing arises, what comes is joy and gratitude and love. And so when people drop into that, it lets go of all the rim stuff, you know, this particular idea of who I am, this particular clinging or controlling, this particular set of thoughts. Mm -hmm. You drop into pure awareness, which I think is the source of love. Mm -hmm. I don't know how that feels for you. That's beautiful. Um, that also reminds me of a quotation from the Buddha, which is maybe my very favorite quotation of all in the world, where he said, uh, develop a mind so filled with love it resembles space which cannot be painted, cannot be marred, cannot be ruined. Oh. Develop a mind so filled with love, it resembles space, which cannot be painted, cannot be marred, cannot be ruined. It's like if there was someone standing in the middle of this room throwing paint around in the air, there's nowhere in the space for it to land, and it's not going to be kind of marred, ruined, you know, because it was a bad choice of color. Um, that free, that open, that spacious, that expansive, oh. that unconstrained, unconfined, well, you know, and that's so different than our notion of love, right? In a romantic pop culture sense. Uh, well, I've got to respond to you, Sharon, because, yeah. and I don't want to get too, I'm a little bit of a nerd when it comes <laughs> to like the science side of this, but yeah. when you imagine that our mental lives, including love and awareness, are some kind of property that arises from and this gets weird but energy flow mm -hmm, mm -hmm. this is what i've been writing about for a long long time and i know it's different from what people usually think but let's just go with that for a moment mm -hmm. if you then sit down with the experts in energy who are quantum physicists and say what is energy and they initially say we don't know we don't know but when you really get them to say it they say it's the movement from possibility to actuality and the way you can visualize this is in a kind of graph where at the top you have these actualizations as peaks, like a thought, for example, might be that. But then you have all the way below the peak, the process of thinking, and even a little bit below that, maybe an attitude or an intention. But if you take it all the way down to where actuality rests, and this mm -hmm. is now mathematical talking, we talk about the space of possibility. Mm. We talk about, in quantum physics terms, a sea of potential. Arthur Zions likes to use that term. And in quantum physics terms, it's called the quantum vacuum. Now, in this graph, it looks like a plane, so we call it the plane of possibility. Now, what that plane is, it's the generator of diversity. 
it's the source of all that can be, rests in the space that's not marred, if you will, by form. Mm -hmm. So it's both formless and the potentiality of all forms that mm -hmm. might be. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so from a math point of view, what that correlates with, I, I've done the wheel now with 10,000 people and then recorded the results. And what people say when they take the microphone and they talk about the different parts, just like the person who talked about love, they'll say, when I was turning the spoke of attention into the hub itself, the mm -hmm. hub of knowing, mm -hmm. rather than being on the rim of the knowns, I had this experience of spaciousness, vastness. Mm -hmm. I had this feeling of eternity. I had this feeling of love, gratitude, God, this sense of wholeness, this sense of being at home, unbelievable connection to everything. And what I think that is, is that awareness comes from this plane of possibility, that it actually arises in ways we don't understand why, but I think it does, from this sea of potential. Now, this is consistent with quantum physics, and Arthur Zions, who is a quantum physicist, was very excited about how you might apply that quantum physics notion to then an exploration of the mind's awareness, mm -hmm, and we're mm -hmm. talking about love, and this is where you see that if we can help people cultivate a mind that drops out of the rim and into the hub, that's the metaphor, but in the physics way of really looking at possible mechanism, teach them to not be imprisoned by peaks and plateaus of thought or thinking or judgment, mm -hmm. not cling to those, not be attached in the way we talked earlier about it, but drop down into the spaciousness of the plane then suddenly you realize not only is that where freedom arises and joy and gratitude and love, but your plane and my plane and everyone who's listening to us, all of our planes, because it's infinity, are the same. The same, yeah. So that's yeah. where we find each other and that's yeah. where love arises. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> How does that feel to you? Because I, I, we've never talked about that before. Well, so it, I'd love it, to know no, you... it's wonderful. I mean, it's actually, <laughs> I also had a, a stray thought. Um, I did a retreat once with uh, Mindrimache, his Tibetan Lama, and he had different scientists present in the evening. And uh, he started with a physicist who had, I think, three nights. And uh, the physicist started with Newtonian physics. And I was sitting there thinking, I actually don't understand anything he's saying. And I tried and tried and tried to understand. And then I thought, it actually doesn't matter. He's going to refute it tomorrow night anyway. <laughs> Say none of it's true. He's going to move on to quantum yeah. physics. So I thought, why am I struggling to understand this? Um, I'll, I'll, and I'll so tell this you is a actually story. more resonant, yeah. you know, yeah. because of uh, Buddhism and, and meditation practice. You know? Well, exactly. So, you know, a funny thing happened where we were doing the wheel practice somewhere and someone from England did it. And, you know, when you drop into the hub of the wheel and basically get into this plane, you start experiencing the difference between, you know, these large bodies we live in are what are called macro states. And just like your car, or your bicycle, or your body, they operate by Newtonian physics. And Sir Isaac Newton, you know, hundreds of years ago came up with these great laws that are actually true for large accumulations of energy called matter, right? So we know E equals MC squared. This is what Einstein taught us. Energy equals mass times speed of light squared, meaning mass is very condensed energy. And it forms in these complex units that are macro states. But when you get to the microstate level, like at an electron or a photon, the Newtonian properties don't apply. And you have to look at a whole different view, which is quantum view. So in the audience doing the wheel practice, someone realizes that the Newtonian world dissolves away when you get into pure awareness. 
and there's this loss of what's called the arrow of time. So she contacts me and says, I live right next to Sir Isaac Newton's house. Please come do the wheel practice around the apple tree where he figured out gravity. <laughs> so we did it. And it was unbelievable. And right before we did the, the wheel practice around the apple tree, we're in the place where he was born. His house is right next door. And it's where when there was a plague in Cambridge and he took some time away from the plague to think about things, he thought about all these gravity and all stuff. There's a quote of his that says, I can predict the motion of celestial bodies, but I cannot predict the madness of men mm -hmm. because the mind in many parts is quantum, but the large world of macro state mm -hmm. matter is Newtonian. Oh, great. And that's why you couldn't yeah. do it. And that's why you had that feeling. Yeah. Yeah. So this is the exciting thing because you can start using these quantum experiences of energy in a way that I think is very scientifically grounded and has incredible usefulness for how we apply it in everyday life. So the, I have another question about that. Um, because, uh, well, in uh, Pali, the language of the original Buddhist text, the word that we translate as meditation is bhavana, and it means cultivation. Mm -hmm. uh, in some schools of Tibetan Buddhism, the word, the term they use instead of meditation is getting used to it. Getting used getting to used it. Getting used to it. Getting I familiarized with it. It's really cute. <laughs> and that's basically, you know, then of course everyone asks, well, what's it? And... Um, <laughs> That's really based on the idea that we have had, just as human beings, living a life and with intuition and, and capacity, we have had experiences of tremendous connection and clarity and uh, love and so on, but we don't tend to be awfully used to them, right? We don't live there. So I'm really curious, when, when you guide someone through this process and they have that kind of experience, mm. how is it integrated into their lives? Because, you know, when people have these flashes sometimes, um, it either is, is unintegrated or they long to get it back and they don't know how or they get into a clinging state because attachment in that sense is still, you know, very relevant in our lives or, you know, it inspires them forever. I don't, I don't really know what the, how to make it inspire one forever. Oh, God, what a beautiful question. Um, let me try to respond in a kind of yeah. dance with you about yeah. this because it's such a beautiful question. Um, at one level, we can say this this really interesting reality that is so weird that it's hard for people to even think about it. But from a physics point of view, you have this reality that if I take a glass and I pour water out of it, you know the water will go down mm -hmm. because of the Newtonian property that Sir Isaac Newton figured mm -hmm. out, gravity. It's absolute. It's, a, it's a, not a probability. It's going to go down. When I pour this water out, it goes down to the ground or the table. Quantum is about probabilities. So if I say to you, Apple, you don't know what your mind is going to come up with next. There's no guarantees of anything. So we live in a Newtonian body, mm -hmm. but we have, in many ways, a quantum mind. Now, this irks people, right? Mm -hmm. So we try to shove Newtonian rules because we figure they're the most accessible. Even when we think about the brain, for example, 
which may be in some ways more Newtonian because it's these large macro states, mm -hmm. but the mind is not the same as the brain. It's mm -hmm. not. Mm -hmm. So even though since Hippocrates' time 2,500 years ago, that's just been the, what you say. Mind is a synonym for brain activity. But I think that's a partial truth that when you believe it as a whole truth, it gets us into deep, mm -hmm. deep mm -hmm. trouble. So part of the way I would begin to respond to your question is, when people, let's say they do any kind of practice, compassion training, mindfulness training with, you know, compassion, or, you know, if you look at the wheel practice just as an integration of conscience practice, they can get this sudden experience of a loss of the arrow of time. The arrow of time is basically a physics term for the directionality of change. And at the quantum level, there is no arrow. So they drop into the hub, that's the metaphor. So they're entering the plane, that's the mechanism and they feel this arrow-free existence. It's eternity, basically. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. And then they come back out mm -hmm. into the rim. Mm -hmm. They come back out in their body, and they go, whoa, I just got an arrow of time shoved back on me. Yeah. Let me go back there. Yeah. You know, and, and what I say to them, like if they leave a retreat, I said, look, when you leave the retreat, you're going to need to go to rim elements to watch what's going on in the traffic, press on the brake, and mm -hmm. stuff like that, because... If you just hang out in the hub, if you hang out in that plane of possibility, then when you come to an intersection, if you don't stop that car, you will become one with everything. So there's nothing wrong with the rim stuff. We do live in a body. You've got yeah. to press on the brakes, right? Yeah, yeah. You've got to do that. So part of what I have found personally helpful in myself, my own inner life, but also in working with other people, is to let them know we do have these two aspects of reality we have a newtonian macro state aspect which is real you got to press on the brakes mm -hmm. you got to do that but you also have an arrow free hub based you know plane of possibility based quantum level of your mind that even though i've had a lot of psychologists roll their eyes and say oh you're talking about quantum physics it's really unnecessary you should just go to neuroscience don't go to quantum physics and i go if the mind is a property of energy mm-hmm then going to just brain structure and function is not enough. Mm -hmm. You've got to go to energy, if it's an emergent property of energy, which I think it is. And then when you do that, suddenly things which were mysterious, like since I've been around 11 or 12 years of age, I was always going, there's something weird happening here. Like I feel eternity, but I know the clock is going. Mm -hmm. But I feel eternity, but I know the clock is going. I'm getting older. This body's getting older. And this helps us understand it. Mm -hmm. And even facing death. I mean, yeah, yeah. you change your whole relationship to death when you start really opening to these mm -hmm. contrasts in our experience. I'm really curious now because I remember when we did this thing together, um, you had a book just about to come out and we were at oh, yeah. you know, Jonathan Diana's and, yeah. and the book was about the teenage brain. Yes, or, or, yeah, brainstorm, yeah. yeah. And uh, so now I'm thinking, let's say you've had this kind of like your parliamentarian, really a life-altering kind of uh, insight, you mm -hmm. know, how do you apply it to raising your child? Like what happens in your, yeah, when your teenager is being a teenager? I know, I know. Well, there's a whole brainstorm teenage thing we could say, but, but at the deepest level for teenagers we work with, or, you know, this morning I was just teaching to a whole school initiative, and I, I'm going to say this, and I'd love to know how you feel about it, but what I said to these educators, and it's how I would approach and how I have approached, you know, 
being with adolescents, whether they're my own or you know, you know, ones in my family or uh, in schools, I think one of the most um, toxic things we have in our modern society is the four-letter word self. And that we raise children with all good intentions and we say, Danny, little Sharon, you're in that body. Your self is like a noun and it lives in a body. When in the reality, I believe deeply that we don't embrace with that linguistic term, self is a verb and in fact, it's a plural verb. And your skull is not the origin of your mind and your body, your skin encased body is not the origin of the self. And so love and selfing as a verb go together because when you embrace that you're a me that lives in a body and a we that lives in relationship and you bring them together, so like it's, you know, I use this term we at the end of the brainstorm, we, M-W-E, like muy bien, you know, M-W-E, you say to a kid, and this is what I say to adolescents, you are not just a me in that body. Who you are is as much a me in the body, so exercise your body, feed the body well, get good sleep, really good for your body, that's a me. You are equally a we. You have an inner mind that's the me and an intermind that's a we. And so even though society and school and everything going on in the media doesn't tell you this, you are the person who you're looking at. And this is why even the term self-compassion makes me nervous. I think it should be called inner compassion mm, mm. and quote, other directed compassion should be called intercompassion because when you're compassionate with what, what we're calling the person in the other body, that is yourself, mm -hmm. right? So we allows you to embrace that. So that's what I think we need to do with the future generation. And I think it's gonna be a win-win-win thing because when the new generation realizes that selfing involves what we call other people, they are yourself, and then trees are yourself, nature's yourself, and the whole way we take care of the planet is we treat it as a part of our extended body rather than a trash can. Woo. Wee. Wee, wee. I'm trying to put that together with attachment theory. You know? Well, yeah, well, exactly. I mean, this is, see, this is where I think, you know, the work you're doing is so beautiful because we need to go out in society. We need to go into corporations. We need to go into schools. We need to really, you know, the way human families change now, the way our global mm -hmm. human family can change is through something called cultural evolution. It's not so much about changing the books of our genes. It's about changing the ideas and ways we communicate with each other. And mm -hmm. I think if we could start communicating that the self is a plural verb, not a singular noun, that it's a we, not a me in isolation, that the mind is not just coming from the head, that in fact it is coming from an inner aspect of the whole body and a relational aspect from our connections with other people on the planet, we're going to have a different world. And I think the human family is capable of doing this, and it's going to benefit everybody. It's so interesting. You also reminded me of when I was first um, studying with Tibetan lamas. All my first teachers were Burmese or had studied in Burma. And then uh, living in India, it was like, you know, a giant spiritual supermarket. And, and at one point, I, I began studying with these Tibetan lamas. And, and one of the images they always used was like a tree, like the tree of ignorance and suffering. And they said, you know, don't start by picking apart the leaves and, you know, taking off little twigs and then getting to the branches. They say, uproot it. Just uproot it. You know, your work is done. So 
which is not the way we normally talk about things. You know, it's like one of the things I I talked about in the book I just wrote, Real Love, was um, the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves and the stories others tell us about us, you know. Uh, but it was really a much more relative level, like um, leading to, you know, a, a kind of radical transformation of who we think we are in terms of being alone and isolated compared to interdependent. Uh, so now I'm reflecting on, you know, what's it like to kind of do it in the other direction, you know? Yeah, well, that's exactly it. I mean, and you think about those narratives, you know? Yeah. The, the narratives, and that actually even gets back to attachment research, but the narratives are how we create these reflective senses of who we are. And mm -hmm. if the narrative we can start creating just opens up and says, I'm uprooting uh, the false narrative that the mind comes from the brain alone, the self comes from the body alone. I'm uprooting those. And I'm saying, okay, they've been taught in contemporary society for thousands of years, literally, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but they're actually incomplete stories. Mm -hmm. And in their incompleteness, they lead us down a blind alley mm -hmm. and they're making us destroy this planet. So you say, okay, so then what's the new narrative? Mm -hmm. The new narrative is that the self is actually deeply a verb. It's an unfolding process, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and you can't cling on to it. It's, there's nothing that's permanent. You're an unfolding thing. But here's the beautiful thing about looking at it in all the ways that inner reflection allows you to do is when you do, let's say, compassion training, mm -hmm. it, like mm -hmm. that you've so beautifully brought to the, to the West, and, and you look at that or you look at going into awareness of awareness like you do with this hub-on-hub -hub part of the wheel practice, mm -hmm. And people literally experience the love, not just say, oh, I'm doing Sharon's meta practice now. You know, they actually experience this, I mean, this sense of eternity, this sense of incredible interconnection, not as an idea, but literally as an experience. And it can be fleeting. You can just get a glimpse of it, and that's fine, because you know, we drop into that plane of possibility where I think love arises, where the sense mm -hmm, of a mm -hmm. we arises, and where the sense is, you know something? We're just this emergent property. You get about, if you're lucky, about 100 years to live in your Newtonian body. Cool. But your quantum mind is infinite. So you have 100 years in a quantum, I mean, 100 years in a Newtonian body, which, of course, if that's the whole story, you freak out. You go, I want to hold on to this. Oh, my God, this makes me upset. I'm, how, how can I ever live thinking I only get 100 years because I'm aware? Well, the fact is you drop into that and you realize that if you can connect to other people, in quotes, the other people, as you, then as we go through this journey in these Newtonian bodies and they come to the end of their life, you as a plural you, you as a we, continue on. And I'm not trying to be just mm -hmm. like gushy. I'm, I'm literally talking about the science of awareness and the way we connect with each mm -hmm. other. And so that, I mean, as I mentioned, I mean, that for me, getting deeply into that aspect of the science of, of awareness just shifted the feeling I had about life and death. Mm -hmm. And it shifted the feeling I had, I guess you could call it about love, but certainly about this incredibly powerful feeling of connectivity so when I walk around the streets of New York, for example, and I see all these bodies walking around their differentiated ways of being, 
we're just manifestations of literally the same essence. And I go, mm-hmm. oh, there I go, there I go, there mm-hmm. I go. And it feels like that. And of course, you have a me part, so you want to take care of that. That's our responsibility mm-hmm. too. But we need to encourage this broader sense where love arises and where our interconnection is felt deeply in every breath we take. It's fantastic. And um, I also want to go back to your parliamentarian because isn't it interesting that love is seen as weak and gushy and sentimental? And uh, until we change that narrative, then everyone will be reluctant to introduce it into the conversation, to consider it in making social policy and even admitting it, right? Yeah. And what, what's been your experience on how to help people see love as strong? Well, I mean, some of it is experiential, you know, and some of it is, let's, let's just challenge that myth, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, what are the myths we hold? What are the lies we've been told? What, you know, uh, let's really take a look ourselves. You know, where does strength lie? Is it in vengefulness? Is it in this sense of separation? Is it, do we really feel better when we belittle others, which is what we're taught, you know, mm-hmm. like as contemptuous as you can be of someone else and, you know, kind of puff yourself up the better you'll feel. But is that true? Well, exactly. I mean, it brings to mind in terms of love and life. Um, it's kind of a, it's a sad story, but, uh, but, but it's um, a really powerful experience. Um, there were some suicides in a high school, actually right across the street from Stanford University. And mm-hmm. It's public. It's Palo Alto High School, Pali High School and Gunn High School. Mm-hmm. And the kids were jumping in front of the train that goes from San Francisco to San Jose. So they asked me to come do an intervention. So the kids, I spoke with the, the, the students, with the teachers, with the parents, and the um, high school kids made a l- little video of it, and it was such a good video. We put it up online, so you can go to our mm-hmm. website, drdansiegel.com, and watch their video of it. But here's what I said to them, and you can see me because the camera's on me, and you can't see because you know the faces, but they were terrified. Mm-hmm. Like, what is going on in our society that these bright, motivated, passionate kids are jumping in front of a train. So what I said to them is I said this. I said, look, the way contemporary society sets it up is they say, look, let's use the analogy of a candle. And I point to the kids in the audience. I said, look, if you're a candle, then here's what you're told, basically. You're supposed to be the shiniest candle around. And so if you're walking around and someone's got a bigger flame than you, you may not get into Stanford or whatever school, you know. And so your job is to blow out their candle and you have a bigger flame. I said, so you're busy, worried about, are you sufficient? Are you sufficient? Are you sufficient? You know, I said, think about a world like this where instead of worrying about the wax of your candle, you realize who you are is the flame. So then if you have your wick lit, and you look to the right, and there's a candle that's not lit, well, then you lean over and you light the wick of that candle. And then the two of you are lit. And what if you look to the left and there's another candle that's not lit? And then you lean over and you light that candle. Now three of you are lit. So I asked the audience, I said, so what did that do to your flame? And they go, nothing. And then a a mother says, but it made the world a brighter place. Mm. And I said, that's what you need to do. We need to live like we are the flame, not the wax alone. Mm-hmm. Yes, you have a candle with the body. Yes, and you want to take care of your candle. But you are the flame. 
And that's the flame of love, you know? And that's the flame of realizing when we are the light, then we can do this together. Wow. Mm. Yeah. It's beautiful. It's, I just want to um, ask you one more, or tell you one story, and then get your, get your feeling about that, and then probably we need to stop. I'm sorry. Uh, we could do this forever. Let's, let's do it great? again. Let's do it again. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, uh, it's it's kind of a question about uh, maybe again back to attachment theory in your sense of it, you know, and uh, having had a traumatic childhood or a very difficult childhood, and and the role of intention and mm. experience and and getting through that. So I was uh, when Richard Davidson was opening his uh, center in Wisconsin with his lab. Um, he uh, had a day of kind of celebration, and the Dalai Lama was there. And I was on a panel with the Dalai Lama and uh, Richie and um, Matthew Ricard and uh, Barbara Fredrickson and uh, a number of other people, a few other people. And uh, somewhere in there, I think it was when Barbara was presenting, um, she's a researcher at the University of North Carolina, and Somehow she and Richie got into this dialogue about how important it was to have a happy childhood, to have affection in your childhood, um, to sort of establish your the right story, basically, about who you are and, um, and how much more difficult life was if you didn't have that kind of affection. And the Dalai Lama started, as he often does, talking about his mother, who was his first teacher, and told him everything he knows about compassion. And I could just feel the audience was getting more and more depressed. So, because not everyone had it such a yeah. you know pleasant childhood, including me. So I raised my hand like for some attention, and I said, "Well, you know, I didn't really have that that happy a childhood." And uh, it's a little bit hard to tell the story because some of it was very visual. It's like I said, I didn't really have a very happy childhood in both the Dalai Lama and Tupin Jumpers translator. It's like their mouths turned into this inverted U. It was oh, like, yeah. oh, <laughs> you know. Uh, and I said, but I feel like I had very strong intention. And once I had a uh, kind of methodology with the Dharma, with the practice, um, I really worked my way through to, you know, a much greater sense of wholeness and integration and happiness and so on. So, uh, and then I feel the audience really cheer up. <laughs> Beautiful. You know, so yeah. um, there's something about uh, being an adult and feeling um, it's kind of the repair in a way. Yeah, of what one didn't get, or the um, or feel you didn't get, even if you did get it, and uh, the the sense of integration that can come through intention. Yeah, you yeah. know, intention not will power, you know, but practice. Yeah, really practicing a different story. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. So this, first of all, thank you for sharing mm -hmm. the experience. Um, Let me share a couple of um, particular responses to particular mm -hmm. parts mm -hmm. of what you <laughs> said uh, that I think is so uh, important um, for our understanding. Um, and feel free to jump in at any mm -hmm. moment as mm -hmm. I go. The first thing I just want to say in terms of research on mm -hmm. parent-child relationships and the brain is that you know we are mammals and so we have attachment which means that as young we need our relationship with the attachment figure to help our brains grow well 
So that's the first thing that's just, you know, for hundreds of millions of years, that's the deal with being a mammal. It's primates. We have a, a more complex brain because we're, we're very, very social. Mammals are social, but we're very social. And as humans, we're super social. And humans have something called alloparenting, which means that in addition to our primary caregivers, we can have other caregivers as well. Okay, so that's just the evolutionary background. Now, in terms of the brain, the brain has both what's called an experience expectant form of development, which I'll describe in a moment, and an experience dependent kind of development. What that means is that genes, those books in our library, you know, are there to tell the brain to grow, like, for example, for sight. You don't need to have light to get those areas of the brain to grow. They're experience expectant. They expect light to be there through your eyes. Mm -hmm. But if you don't get the light, then it compromises how that can grow. And then there's experience dependent, which means you needed to, let's say, ride a tricycle to, to have your, the way your mm -hmm. brain is going to mm -hmm. ride a tricycle. Not every human being will ride a tricycle. So mm -hmm. it's specific to that experience. Attachment is probably an experience expectant process mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so that, um, you know, your longing, your desire, your intent to have love in your life is there no matter what happens to mm -hmm. you with your actual attachment figure. So I just mm -hmm, want to say mm -hmm. as an experience expectant process, your brain has got the, the machinery there with the intention for love. So that I just want to put that out there now. Secondly, when you don't get what you want, mm -hmm. it can compromise that for sure. And when you look at the research on either neglect or abuse as the severe forms of compromises, you use the word integration. It actually impairs the integration of the brain, but mm -hmm. that doesn't mean you can't grow integration later on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's from a brain point of view. If you said, what's the summary of how compromise integration impairs the brain? It impairs integration. And what's absolutely amazing, and this... I'm not making this stuff up. This comes from, you know, our colleagues in the field of mindfulness research and then my colleagues in the field of attachment. Watch this. In attachment, we know that with severe abuse and neglect called developmental trauma, and if you just look at the work of Martin Teicher, the main integrative compromises are the corpus callosum that links the left and right side that are differentiated and linked, the hippocampus, which is linking widely separated areas to each other, the prefrontal cortex, which links up and down and even the social world to things going on inside the body and its brain. And now we have these studies called the connectome, which are the more subtly differentiated areas and how they're connected. Those four ways show compromise and integration. That's attachment research with a developmental trauma. Now let's look at mindfulness research. If you had to summarize what does mindfulness do with the three pillars, you know, of focused attention, open awareness, and compassion training that I call kind intention, it grows the integrated fibers of the brain. It grows the corpus callosum. It grows the hippocampus. It grows the prefrontal cortex, and it makes the connectome more interconnected. These are independent fields of science that have found that compromises to attachment compromise these integrative fibers, mindfulness mm -hmm. training actually promotes them. Mm -hmm. Now, what we haven't done is taken people who have had developmental trauma, mm -hmm. given them mindfulness mm -hmm. training, and then studied their brains. That needs to be done, but mm -hmm. conceptually, this is absolutely startling. 
research on well-being shows that having an integrated brain is the best predictor of well-being. And many, many psychiatric disorders other than trauma actually have impaired integration. So integration in the brain seems to be created by mindfulness practice. Now, the, the last thing I'll say in terms of our plane of possibility view, your experience in your childhood could not take away your plane of possibility. Mm -hmm. That hub of the metaphoric wheel, that plane of possibility in our quantum view, couldn't take it away. Mm -hmm. So it's there in you, even if you're not being received with love and kindness and connection mm -hmm. and integration in the attachment experience you have, nobody can take your plane mm -hmm. away. That's right. Then you beautifully find your way to practices that then you bring back to the West where it allows people, in my view, to drop into that plane of possibility where love arises, where open awareness arises, where the sense of spaciousness, you can deal with stress in a more effective way, you can integrate your brain in a more effective way, you can integrate your life relationally in a more effective way. You found the plane of possibility that had never gone away. You could get beneath all these plateaus and peaks of non-optimal attachment experiences that may have been blocking the way for many people. You drop beneath them. You, access, you uprooted them. You got access to the plane of possibility, and that's where love and awareness arise. And amazingly, this plane is not only, the, for whatever reason, the source of knowing of consciousness, but it's the source of new possibilities because it's the generator of diversity. It's where all things arise from. It's the sea of potential. So when we drop into that love, when we drop into that awareness, we're not just having the subjective feeling of now I'm aware, you're actually accessing mm -hmm. options that you didn't have before. That, how does that feel that to you? It feels amazing. I really, I love that. I love you. I love you. <laughs> thank you so much. Oh, Sharon, thank you. Oh, let's do it again. Okay. Anytime. All right. So um, thank you really so much for, for coming here today. Um, I feel like this kind of conversation is amazing. It's very important for us to be having in order to continually rediscover love and and its power in our lives. So for more information about Dan's work and his teaching schedule, you can visit www.dansiegel. It's S-I-E-G-A. Dr. Dan Siegel. Dr. Dan Siegel. Mm -hmm. oh. Yeah, D-R. Okay, D Dr. Dan Siegel. D-R-D-A-N-S-I-E-G-E-L. Okay. Dan. There you go. So for more information about Dan's work and his teaching schedule, you can visit www.drdansiegel. That's S-I-E-G-E-L.com. Wow. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more information about Sharon's many offerings and her ongoing teaching schedule, please visit her website at SharonSalzberg.com. <laughs>